Warning, Star Trek from the holodeck contains adult language and discussions. If you're easily offended, do not continue to listen. Walk it alone! Fire! Holodeck 3 program is reinstated. Open sesame! Commander Klingon vessel. We are energizing transport of him. Now. Star Trek from the holodeck. This is the Lower Decks edition. We are currently circling Deep Space Nine because we are in awe of the pylons. I'm trying not to cry. <laughs> David is reading an Orion hollow novel, the kind with boobs on the cover, while I'm circling the ship. <laughs> he's not doing his job at the helm because he's so engrossed in that hollow novel. Yes. <laughs> but I love the pylons. <laughs> Those right. pylons are magnificent. I love it. What a fun episode. Dude, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie. You know, me and you Mike started this series and I was a I was a DS9 detractor. Oh I know you were. But afterwards I fell in love with DS9 and then we saw everything. The, this episode brought a tear to my well, eye. It was because I conditioned you, you know, like in <laughs> Clockwork Orange, where I, you know, you, I, oh, I forced your eyes open on Deep Space Nine <laughs> until you could appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, dude, what a fun episode! I'm not a, I'm not the biggest fan of fan service, you know, but this is what the show is. <laughs> I mean, is Lower Decks is. is a fan service show. That is what it is. And they know how to dish out the fan service. And this is another example of Mike McMahon's skill to bring in nostalgia. But also, not only that, we're going to get into everything because I'm kind of jumping around here. But not only did we were, were we given such a nostalgic vibe, but we were also given key story aspects as well. Yeah. When it comes to the larger world of Star Trek. But not just that. Also, when it comes to our core... Lower Decks crew. Lower Decks crew. We had development for Mariner in a big way. We had development of Fertendi in a big way. So overall, this episode just knocked several key aspects into place for their season. And uh, I can't really complain, right, Dave? No, because like for me, especially the we, me and you have been tossing around how like a lot of franchises do Easter eggs, especially mm -hmm. Star Trek. And everyone says, oh, look at this Easter egg. Star Trek references. Star Trek references, or references right? I should say, yeah. I think that this episode is truly how they should do Star Trek references. Because Mike McMahon was not just able to give us a story of Lord Dex, mm -hmm. but in a way, he gave us an episode that felt like it belonged in DS9 universe. Yeah. And... You know, he's an adaptable writer. He's a very adaptable writer and he's able to actually cross those type of vibes is amazing. I mean, that's what made this episode special. It's because Mike McMahon is a true Star Trek fan. He isn't just a fan of one thing because that's been my problem with a lot of not just with the Star Trek fandom, but a lot of fandoms that have been around for a long time, like Star Wars, um, 
Marvel stuff. What, what you could point to numerous IPs that have been around a long time. What was that noise? That was me. Oh, okay. That was my dog. I was gonna. <laughs> she squealed. What was I saying, David? You distracted me over there. Sorry. What was that? A straw? No, that was me coughing. Oh, oh, I thought it was a straw, like scraping out of a cup. I'm like, wow, am I that boring right now? No, no, no. I was, I was that emotional about <laughs> thinking about DS9. Oh, I don't even remember what I was saying. <laughs> oh, IPs and different yes. uh, people that. Okay, Mike McMahon. That's what I was talking about. So, Mike McMahon is what I always want our directors and writers to be. They actually understand the entirety. Of, of a property, of a franchise, and not just moments. Like, for example, my biggest problem with Picard was that I didn't feel like the showrunner at the time for season one. What's his name? Shaban. Shaban. I didn't feel like Mike Shaban actually understood the world of Star Trek. Uh, and he did it real. I don't even think he watched all the other Star Trek shows. Nor did he feel like he watched TNG in itself. It seemed like he had a basic understanding of TNG and of Picard. Like for example, Picard from the movies, the high points, the, the PTSD from the Borg invasion and his assimilation, stuff like that. Key, key highlights that most people know within the mainstream. Whereas Mike McMahon is what a lot of us want our creators to be a true fan of the property and not just a small section of the property, but all of its vastness. And that's why he's able to delve into these different episodes from week to week and give us a little bit of those, those nostalgic references from different iterations of Star Trek throughout the decades. And every time it hits and it hits in a way that could only be successful if the person writing and running the show understands it. Yes. And that's why this episode works. Oh yeah. I mean, you could tell that Mike McMahon, I think this is like, pinnacle of him showing he understands what star trek is but not just that he knows the differences between every single series yep and i i think at this point dave a lot of people know how i feel about deep space nine and i mean the reason why i was looking forward to this episode when it was rumored that there would be a uh, a ds9 eccentric episode this season the reason why i was looking forward to watching was I consider was because I consider Deep Space Nine probably the and I, this might be blasphemous to some people, but I consider it the most consistently well written series across the board, especially after season three, uh, maybe even midpoint of season three. It, the show just fell together when Stephen Ira Burr took over as showrunner. The show just found itself and it just worked, and from then on, it just became such a well oiled machine. And had some of the best character moments in all of Star Trek. Some of the best intricately uh, designed narratives that just mapped out the world of Star Trek in really big ways. They took broad strokes. They took small strokes. Nothing was off limits in the world of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, and especially like some of those moments were arguably the most emotionally impactful. Controversial. Controversial. And and that's one of the the problems that a lot of people had with D Space Nine was that controversy because there were people saying what a lot of people are saying about the Kurtzman era. Oh, it's not Star Trek. They're throwing out the Gene Roddenberry playbook. But this is a Trek series, D Space Nine, that uses the finesse of what Trek represents as a scalpel to dissect the human condition. That's what D Space Nine did the right way. During time of war, Things that we didn't see in Star Trek. 
when paranoia and fear would logically run rampant. That's what Deep Space Nine did. It still told stories pertaining to the human condition, but it threw the human condition into the chaos of war. Yes. That's where he, I should say, the show went down a very different route where the Federation ideals were being challenged in order to prove Roddenberry's thesis correct. And that's what I've always said, David. We said this when we were talking about Discovery. Sometimes it may look like a showrunner or a writer is just disregarding Gene Roddenberry's original vision. And there's been some moments where I might agree with that in the Kurtzman era. But for the most part, I've agreed with what they've done because it's not about doing the same thing, rinse and repeat. It's about doing other stories that weren't possible in years past. And it may look like you're just disregarding the playbook, but in all actuality, what you're doing is you're challenging it so you can prove that it actually works. You're bending the rules. You're bending the rules. You're bending the rules. Prove that Roddenberry's idea of this future and optimism actually can work. Yes. I, for one, have always loved that D Space Nine did that. And this episode, when analyzing the DS9 aspects, was satisfyingly ambiguous. It was. Uh, Mike McMahon and his writers did a good job. This is my other hesitation going in. They did a good job walking the line of ambiguity, giving the viewer just enough to feel satisfied Mm -hmm. without getting into the dangerous territory. And when I say dangerous territory, I'm talking about Cisco. (laughs) Yes. And and even the founders themselves and the Dominion. I don't feel like... We should learn about what happened to the Dominion, the founders, and Cisco in an episode of Lord Deck. So what did they do? They found a story that was focused on Kira, which we all already had those assumptions. Yes. Based on the ending of Deep Space Nine, that Kira would be in charge of the station. And the Bajoran government would have taken over DS9. Correct. And Cork was going to be still on the station. We just didn't know that Quark would actually be so freaking successful. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, come on. You find out in this one, you we finally, all the hints that we've had about Quark, especially in Picard, about like all the, all the restaurants that basically the chain that he created, and you finally get confirmation that, yeah, he owns all those franchises. He owns 21 franchises. 21 franchises. 21 franchises. <laughs> I like that because so okay, so we got a little bit on D Space Nine, right? We had Kira being a colonel now, she's in charge of the station, yeah. and then Quark's bar. But also I love how they connected the dots from the new era as well, because in Picard season one, they introduced the idea of this Quark franchise, at least we had assumed. Yes. Because we saw a Quark's bar. Quark's bar. And then we saw another version of Quark's bar, I want to say in season one of Lower Decks. Yes. So we had all, and they were both on different planets. So we were already saying, okay, so Quark has a franchise Franchise. of some sort. He made it big. He even had pull because didn't they use him and by name in the first season that they spoke to Quark in order for them to meet with some criminal organization on that planet. Remember where seven and nine blows away her ex lover. Yes. It was that episode. It was that episode. But so we knew Quark had landed it big, and here we have that confirmation. So I love that not only was this like a bit of a sequel to the D Space Nine era, but also it's following up on things they set up just a couple years ago. Mm-hmm. And that's the beautiful thing is kind of like it's doing stuff like this. They didn't have to overdo it. 
No. But they all they did was just basically confirm little things and kind of confirm like what we all figured would what happened to the station of DS9 after the Dominion War. At that point, at the end of the Dominion War, it was going to be taken over by the Bajorans. And most likely, it was going to be kind of like this historic landmark that had the wormhole. And that was it. Because there was no conflict anymore. It, right. It almost the would station become, was strategically placed. It was strategically because placed. Because of the wormhole. And then, like, when the wormhole is like, okay, there's no conflict anymore, it would turn into kind of like what we all thought it would into kind of like almost like a, a historic war landmark that mm-hmm. you see nowadays, like, like Normandy or, or even for, uh, like some of the battles in, in, uh, in France, right. It would yeah. have been turned into something like that. Yeah. And sure enough, they kind of said, yeah, the Bajorans took it over and turned it into a tourist trap. But look what they did not do. They did not delve into they didn't delve the into politics, politics of Cardassia at all. Or even the religion. That's, or the religion. And that's a question we've had for a very long time when it comes to not just the religion. I'll get into that in a second. But the Cardassia, we know in the final se- in the final episodes that they finally made a commitment to become a very different type of Cardassia. Yeah. And we, of course, have no idea how that turned out. Now, if you look at Star Trek Discovery, that now takes place close to a thousand years in the future, we know that the very president of the Federation is half Cardassian. Yes. So we obviously know at some point Cardassia becomes, you know, fully integrated within within the Federation to some degree. Uh, but I do like that they also stayed away from that. I know there were yeah. some fans out there wanting them to touch on certain things, but Deep Space Nine was a show that had so many moving parts and they brought them to an end, but also there were clues as to, okay, this is what could happen. Could happen. And you got to be careful in Lower Decks because you don't, Lower Decks is canon, so there's and no room wanna, for error. And you don't want to change the tone. That's why I thought, yeah. I thought one of the coolest moments when it came to, you know, referring to even the Cardassian background of Deep, DS9 was actually when Shax looks at it and calls it a <laughs> tacky Cardassian fascist ice sword. Yeah, I love it. And I'm like going, you know what? I give Shax a lot of a lot of praise because he's Bajoran. He would probably actually look at that. And yeah, a lot of Bajorans probably look at that DS9 as like you're my not God. For, you're not forgetting, you know, what it, what decades happened of there. enslavement, even though 20 years has gone by. Exactly. But that's one thing that I liked as well is that as the the pairing of Kira and Shax, which oh, just made sense. Was funny. It was so funny. The back and forth between them about who saved who and who owed who, <laughs> who owns was a such a funny parody of so many of Kira's relationships in Deep Space Nine. Because yes. every time someone from her past showed up, they immediately would talk about <laughs> the war, war and how so-and-so saved their lives. No, you saved my life. So the fact that they played on that and made it fucking funny. Oh, it, yeah. it was so on point. It was good. It was like funny too because the, watching this, watching this episode reminded me of those little elements of DS Nine that we we kind of overlook and right. it's, it becomes part of like because they're not funny in themselves. They're not, but when you actually have this time now to actually take a step back and say, yeah, 
that always happened. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's why I laughed when they made fun of uh, how Jake and Nog used to hang their feet off. Oh, the my God, yes. Remember I was saying a couple episodes ago that I have not had that episode where I laugh out loud yet this season? Well, it finally happened when all you see is Rutherford's legs dangling. <laughs> dangling. And he's all, I want to hang my legs off the promenade. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm like, going, oh, my about, God. Talk about what journalists. He was talking about something about Jake. Yes. Something about talking about the latest journalistic entry I'm writing or something to that effect. That goes to show you how masterful Mike McMahon is over comedy because you have to think what would be funny in a scene like this. And, and if we saw all of Rutherford, it wouldn't be as funny. But the fact that we have the, the virtual camera, the animation focused on Tendi. And the other Orion. Orion. And they only make sure we see just the feet, feet of Rutherford. That's what makes it that much more funny. Yes. And especially, you know, Rutherford, I feel, was like a MVP for the for comedy in this one. because He was us. He was us. He was us. He was all the he fans. He was the viewer. Yes. You cannot tell me if, if DS9 was real. And well, even us is, watching the episode. Yeah. <laughs> and we were like going... Would you not be like Rutherford jumping around going, I want to go everywhere. <laughs> I want to go. But that, that was the thing is like. I want to know where Kira's uh, quarters are. I'm like, can we take a tour of uh, Colonel Kira? <laughs> you know, what? it was funny too, because the only thing that was missing in this episode for me, especially the way it felt and the characters involved, Odo, that's what was missing. Yeah, it was understandable, yeah. but dude, at the end of the episode, I was waiting for, it's almost like reflexively because of how many DS9 episodes where it's a quirk centric episode. And the very end, when you find out that quirk is basically the problem of everything, Odo has to chime in and says, why am I not surprised? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they did mention Smiley. Yes. Chief O'Brien's Chief alter O'Brien. ego from the mirror universe. Which is weird, which is good. Alter ego? No, it'd be what? Uh, doppelganger? Doppelganger. Yeah. It was a doppelganger. <laughs> so they were hitting on those, those classical DS9 moments. People don't really gravitate to the DS9 jokes more. I would say Star Trek fans more or less lean to the original series and TNG for our jokes. But Listen, there's definitely D Space Nine ones, and Smiley's probably up there. Yes. Jake dangling his, his feet, feet from the promenade is definitely one. And then uh, Kira and Jax, their little interplay was also one of those things. Another thing that I thought was fucking funny was how they brought attention to the lunacy of Quark's bar in the first place. When <laughs> yes. Ransom said, when he brought the obvious and said, uh, when he mentioned about buying drinks, he's like, why are you doing this when you can replicate them? Yes. And that is a question, David, that I have had <laughs> since TNG with 10 forward. Why is everybody hanging out ordering drinks? Like uh, you guys all have replicators like this isn't a thing. Now, in the 10 forward, you could probably justify it a little differently. Like, OK, it's just a place where people can peruse and chill and congregate. And then they go to a bar to get their drinks where they get replicated. So that. OK, fine. Now, D Space Nine, it also makes sense because they're not controlled by the Federation money. So yes. It, it, that's why it does make sense. However, it doesn't answer the question about the replicator. And le- because doesn't everyone have access to a have replicator? Access to a replicator. So why would you choose to pay for someone else to replicate your drink? Especially since the, the, the idea was, oh, Quark can get 
illegal goods. Right. But if you have a replicator. (laughs) Well, that's one thing that I did like. The fact that he did mention that these are his recipes. Yes. Now, if they're his recipes, then that would also justify why people would have him replicate their drinks. Their drinks. Meaning these things are not available on the regular replicator. So that would also make sense. But I, regardless, I know we're getting into very deep nerd territory here. But I will say, regardless, I like how they touch on little things like that. It was fun. Oh, it was fun. And that's the thing. This episode is like, this is the this is the proper episode where us as fans can just revel in. And basically, like, the one thing that I always cracked up at, at the especially the very end, was actually uh, when they were complaining of Boimler betting so much. And Boimler points out that he doesn't care about money. He was with the Federation. What the Federation doesn't need money. <laughs> yeah. Hey, and yet another episode where Boimler gets women. Yes. Like, what's up with it? What's happening? So not only did he have all the ladies around him at the, the double table, but also Mariner's girlfriend's friends. Yes. We're all into Boimler. We're into Boimler. And I'm like, I've, Something's, uh, I like this joke that they're slowly burning about Boimler. And how oblivious he is. And how to, oblivious he is. Yeah. And I'm I'm really digging it. I want to see what the, what the punchline's going to be. The punchline is well, the one. Well, it's been like this since fight. season one. Remember he had that super hot girlfriend, allegedly, that Mariner oh, thought yeah, was. yeah, yeah. And she, she was said, an alien. And, and when <laughs> she, she met the, the hot girl, she said computer in program because she... <laughs> That's right. That's that was, right. It was like she was so in doubt that this hot girl was Boimler's girlfriend that she had to say computer and program just to make sure she wasn't in a holodeck. And then she thought that the girl was like this alien, <laughs> alien yeah. uh, blood vampire that was going to kill Boimler. Yeah. So they've been messing around with this Boimler thing for a while now, but they're really doubling down. They're doubling this down the season. Yeah. Okay, so outside of the Deep Space Nine elements, the episode itself was an interesting one. The writer of this episode, I believe was Grace Pada. She took much needed time to delve into some things, explore some situations that needed to be explored. It was some of my complaints for the about this season. And sure enough, they delved into Mariner. They fleshed out the relationship side of Mariner, which... They only have alluded to the fact that she was into this Andorian ensign. Yes. And they. Jen. <laughs> yeah. Dropped the bomb on us in this episode where they were, weren't they in the same bed too? Yeah. Yeah. So they're, they're not playing around anymore. Now they're officially dating and you got to see Mariner try to be someone very different in order to get along with her girlfriend's friends. But at the end of that, I really like what they did with the two of them. It was funny, but also it showed the sincerity of the relationship. How, yes. how the ensign, was it Jennifer? That was, yeah, Jen. yeah. How Jen really did like Mariner and how Mariner, she didn't expect Mariner to be anyone different. She's all, I invited you here because I know how you're going to act. You should act like the way, the way the you person are. you are. I thought that was a nice moment. It was a very real moment in a, an otherwise very silly cartoon. So, well, it, it takes and they're the, giving us those moments that we need this season with Mariner. Yes. We need these things. And this is, to me, that's the biggest thing that's missing this season is these types of moments. Well, they're doubling down on the story of Mariner that we got kind of in the last episode where Mariner was questioning, is she really happy as a Federation person or does she miss that a Federation life? person? A Federation <laughs> 
Yeah, Federation officer. That's fine. That's fine. <laughs> but like as a as part of the Federation or does she miss actually being the the rebel? Does she want to, you know, have freedom and, you know, doesn't want to listen to rules and be the as Jen put it, she wanted she fell in love with Mariner because of her she doesn't take shit from anybody. But that's the old Mariner. Now you have the new Mariner who's like saying, well, now I, I got my friends. I like my life as it is right now. I'm being happy. But then she's given something contradictory where her unquote girlfriend is telling her, no, I like your older self. I like the old you, which is the person that doesn't give two shits about anybody. But at the same time, Mariner has been growing out of that. So it's kind of been cool seeing actually them playing around with that story and going back and forth Yeah, because it's something that it goes to like what me and you said has been missing at the beginning of the season. What is your story arc? What's your myth arc now in two episodes, I can fully say, okay, Mariner to me, her myth arc is, is she happy? Her story arc. Yeah. Is, is she happy with her new self that, because of her now her relationships with Boimler, Tendi, Rutherford, and now Jen, she's this different person you, than she was. Okay, so if you think her overall story arc is she has so, a better relationship so, with her mom, right? So we were we were talking a couple episodes ago about the phases in Mariner's story. Um, first season was about her problems with her mom and coming to some type of common ground. Yeah. Then in the second season, it was about them developing their relationship and getting to know each other as mother and daughter. Yes. And then we had said, well, what's this season really about when it comes to her overarching story arc? And we weren't quite sure. Now it seems like it's her and her relationship, her willing to uh, be vulnerable yeah. with someone else. And that is an interesting story. But do you think they delayed it? because? Of the potential, and I know this sounds very archaic, but we all know that there's a lot of conservative people out there. Do you think they waited to introduce it and they're really tiptoeing around this until this episode, this bisexuality, because of the bisexual aspects? Well, think about it, too. I mean, the way that they... Do you think they didn't want to run the risk of turning people away, or do you think at this point uh, people over at Kurtzman Star Trek even gives a fuck? I think they, I think they're actually thinking about, they do think about it because when you actually stop and think of how it's all the like episodes were format, us, right? Exactly. Yeah. And think about this, that particular story could actually be very risky, but they decided to put it alongside in parallel with a story that all us fans, meaning the DS9 element would get behind. And because the DS9 element makes this episode pop even more it helped that parallel story of, you know, Mariner with Jen kind of ease a bit further. What episode, it was episode three, is where they first gave us that hint, right? Yes. During the Mining the Minds Minds episode. Yeah, because like she, her fantasy was Jen. the Andorian Jen. Yeah, yeah, and basically like Jen, uh, like belittling Ransom. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so... Pussy footing around, maybe that's not the right word to you. It sounds like a negative. So just taking their time, possibly their time. easing the audience into the idea. I think pacing themselves. 
I think yeah. it's about like easing and pacing. Yeah, I don't feel like too. they should have. I feel like at this point, people should understand what to expect from Star Trek. And even though I can appreciate, if that's the case, if I can appreciate that they don't want to rub the fans the wrong way with too many of these so-called liberal iterations. You know, we know that a lot of people are complaining about the over liberalized version of Star Trek during this Kurtzman era, which I don't agree with, but there is that argument. But if you think about it, Mike, look at they, they're paying attention to a lot of the other series and discovery was the, the bar setter. Everyone saw the amount of amount of, I'm not going to say negativity, but amount of trollish behavior that happened with Discovery, even though Discovery is a good show. But do you think the writers in this room are just more self-aware? Than- yes. Okay. I, I really do think, especially Mike McMahon, he's smart. He's a smart, he's a smart writer. Well, most comics, if they're good at their job, they are, are funny men. If they're good at their job, they are self-aware. Yeah. They can read the room. Yeah. All right. So David, Outside of that, we learned a little bit more about Tendi and her rejection of her Orion ways. <laughs> she may reject those ways and she may not be happy with the way many people view her species. But at the end of the day, she knows how to get down as a pirate. Yes. And dude, I love that. I even love that. That was story. one of my favorite sequences. Yeah. Where she basically took the, <laughs> took the key, the multi key from mask and you find out mask is just a poser. Yeah. <laughs> David, pretty much everything in this episode that they did is what's been missing from the rest of the season. Yeah. All my problems that I've had with it, and I, that sounds so negative, all my problems. I'm enjoying this show, but the problems I started to have, they were all addressed in this episode. The, the things that were really funny that made me laugh out loud, the, the funny scenarios that you can get behind that use Star Trek logic on top of the Mike McMahon style of comedy, like the Tindy aspect. It all just hit. And I will give this episode at 89%. I think that's a fair, I mean, I wanted I to go a fair. little higher, but I, the reason why I didn't was because I wanted to make sure my D space nine <laughs> fanboyness was not interfering I, I, because my knee jerk was about a 93, <laughs> but I don't think that's being fair. I are realist or, no, yeah, I don't think that's being fair with my grade. I think that would be skewed and insincere. So I'm going to go 89%. I will follow my fanboyism. Of course. And, and guess what? You said a 93. If you let your DS9 love come in, that's where I was. I am at a 93 with this episode. It's my favorite episode. All right. Well, I'm not going to give you shit because it is a really good episode. <laughs> and, and it very well may be in the 90s, but it's hard for me to know for sure because I am such a huge fan of D space nine and I loved everything they did in this episode. And it says a lot when you get reactions out of me in this episode, especially like in the end where you get to the point where you basically, they find out about the machine and they find out Quark set everything up and Kira's reaction. Literally when they found out Quark, I did something that I haven't done in a long time since I watched DS nine was where I threw a piece of paper at the freaking television, basically, God damn it, Quark. <laughs> because it's like, we should, all us DS9 fans know right away, something is amiss. If Quark is trying to be the all high and mighty, oh, I don't want to, because I don't want to help them because of their ties to the Dominion War. <laughs> it's like, no, no, something's amiss. It makes sense. You yeah. know, DS9 was a dark... 
it, it got dark and Quark had his moments, but this is lower decks. So right when it happened, I'm like, like this is like a Quark eccentric episode that is just missing Odo. That's it. Yeah. Because Odo's the one that needs to figure this out and basically like pie face Quark in the end of it. Quark was such a an underrated character for many years on D Space Nine. Oh, dude. Yes. I want to say it wasn't until like season three, maybe season four, is when people started to really appreciate Appreciating the character. Him. When they look past his swarmy, uh, dishonest, creepy, greedy vibe, and they can look past that and realize that behind all of that there's actually a really decent person person well the, it, and in it's, fact in a lot of ways i would say he's probably the most decent person yeah i, yeah. Would, say, I would say he is the most decent may, maybe the most yes the reason why is because he defied his upbringing he defied the capitalist misogyny of his species. Yeah. And he became the liberal of the Ferengi. I think where you're getting at is like, if you think about how the Ferengi species is, Orc is not a fascist and he's not any, and he definitely wasn't a sexist. No, he was raised by his mother who was essentially a feminist. Yeah. And they all had very, him and his brother both had very good relationships with his mother, with their mother. And they would make sense that they would be different. Oh yeah. And I've, I've challenged all the DS nine fans, not, to deny this fact, but Quark in the very end of DS nine, one of the most emotional scenes was Quark saying goodbye to Odo. Yeah. And then Quark basically is saying, you know, you're going to miss me. <laughs> and, and all of us DS nine fans were like going, you know what? That's a really emotional scene, even though it's it was comedic. one of the saddest moments. It's one yeah. of the saddest moments because like it's two friends truly saying goodbye to each other. Yeah. All right, so this brings us to the end of our discussion. Hopefully people laughed with us, people agreed with us, and if not, then I'm sorry. We enjoyed the episode. David, thank you. Thank you. Live long and prosper. I couldn't help but notice your pain. My pain? It runs deep. Share it with me. End simulation.